Hi, this is Paul Walker from Saskatoon, and you are listening to Beyond the Box. Hi, I'm Rayburn Johnson. And I'm Steve Sensenick. And this is Beyond the Box. Here's your invitation to explore life outside the box of institutional religion. This is a place where there are no walls to restrict our search for truth as we embrace the ambiguity of defining our life in Christ. So unbuckle your seatbelt, recline your chair, throw caution to the wind, and get ready for the ride that is Beyond the Box. Thank you so much for joining us again on Beyond the Box, everyone. It is always great to be with you. Today, I'm joined once again by Trip York for a discussion about his book, The Devil Wears Nada. Now, if you're used to theology books being dry and dull and boring, then get ready because The Devil Wears Nada is anything but those things. Um, the Devil Wears Nada is really a satirical look at the things that we believe in our westernized culture about Satan. And really, even more than that, it's about the crazy things that we believe about God and trying to clear up our image of God and our understanding of who God is. This is a really funny guy who's written a really funny book. So I hope you're going to enjoy this conversation. Trip, thanks so much for joining us. Everyone, strap on your seatbelts because this one is a fun podcast. I hope you enjoy it. Well, everyone, I am pleased to welcome back to the podcast, Mr. Trip York, one of North Carolina's finest. We're going to talk about a great book that he did that I highly recommend you read. Um, I read so many theology books, and I have to say, this is the only one I can actually remember consistently laughing out loud while I was reading it. We're going to talk about his book, The Devil Wears Not a Trip. Welcome back to the podcast. Great to have you back with us. Thanks for having me back. I tell you, this book trip, uh, I, I wasn't quite prepared. I know I read some endorsements on the back that talked about how funny it was, but I was sitting in Wendy's when I started reading this book on my lunch break, and I was literally laughing out loud, and I thought, golly, why can't more theology books be like this? We need some humor <laughs> put into this conversation. And, and, you know, I just was thinking about that, and I was like, I wonder why people don't do more humorous approaches, uh, you know, hum humorous theology books that, that are, that are kind of a lighthearted way of introducing people to, to different topics. And I came across a article in relevant magazine from Larry Schallenberger, where he said, humor requires the ability to admit weakness, which concedes the moral high ground, which is hard to do in a culture war. Humor has to live on the edges of either decency expectations or sanity. And I thought, man, <laughs> I think he's right on. Why, did, why is it you, you know, you've had to get your doctorate. So you've been through hundreds of theology books. Why is it that Christians can't be funny? I, man, that's a good question. And, and, and of course I think, I think many of them are, you know, you go to, you can go like to someone like a uh, Martin Luther, um, who, who could be a real right tyrant in many ways, but that guy was funny. I mean, Martin Luther was, was hilarious in times. Uh, 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 that guy said some horrific, horrible things, but he also said some hilarious things, very quotable. Um, but, I, you know, I don't know if it's because of what people think is so much at stake. 
uh, um, or whatever. But uh, you know, a lot of it come from comes from some of the mystics and folks that I've read um, throughout the uh, Christian tradition that you know ultimately said if there is not some sense by which you know. I don't want to say, you know, these are mystics, so of course they take the Christian life very seriously, but they thought there's a point by which you could take it so seriously that you end up elevating yourself and your thinking of yourself over that which, you know, you're, you're, you're claiming to adore or whatever. Mm. Um, but I don't know, you know, when it comes to Christian theology and things like that, you know, it, the, yeah, these kind of programs attract a certain sort of uh, folk, just like any, any discipline does. And um, uh, I've met a lot of fun people in, in, in my world, and to be honest, uh, and I've met a lot of not funny people in my world. Uh, Mennonites are notorious for not catching sarcasm. <laughs> I actually had a, uh, I, I had written a piece many years ago for the Mennonite, and, uh, um, and it just, I had all this protest against it, and, and I actually had to write a letter and saying, it was sarcasm. <laughs> we got <laughs> people. You get? Yeah. To which uh, um, uh, I can't remember his name, but from one of the midnight schools wrote me. He said, "Trip, I, I need to tell you something." He's like, well, "We don't get, we don't get sarcasm. That just doesn't work. Uh, it doesn't flow." But I think actually it was my doctoral program that made me think: um, if I can't laugh at this, then I don't know what I can laugh at mm-hmm. because there's just some in, in, insanity in it. But um, but I, I did appreciate that Will Willimon said on the back of the book though said he said, "If you never thought of Mennonites as funny, and who has?" <laughs> <laughs> so I, I don't know if that's uh, uh, if that's just my own you know weirdness coming through or, or what, but you, you know I don't I don't know. People are just well, I've uh, heard, real reluctant. I've heard you say that a lot of people can't seem to get past the sarcasm to actually understand what the book is about, which I think is an absolute shame because you know, like I, to me, there there's something about humor that kind of opens us up to truth. It lets us it lets us. Um, like you said, with theology, there's so much at stake that we have a tendency to to guard our, you know, to to be guardians of the gate and to guard our parameters. And there's something about humor that allows us to step back and re-examine um, ourselves as the gatekeepers and realize that maybe, just maybe, we've gotten some things wrong. Right, and and I think that, and especially in this book, I, clearly there's some stuff that's. But it's also a work of satire, and, I, and I'm in love with, 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 with really well-done satire, and I'm certainly not saying this is well-done by any means. But, um, you know, one who, you know, I'm as self-deprecating, and, and I take shots at myself as more than anyone. Sometimes you may have to get beyond the first chapter to get that, and fortunately those who continue reading um, do see that there's sort of a point to many of the jabs that I take in there, especially as I t- turn them on myself. Uh, um, for being a product of this culture and seeing things a certain way, but hopefully it's 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 entertaining. And to be honest with you, I enjoyed writing that book. And, and the part of the reason I enjoyed writing that book because because that's how I teach. I mean, I may I probably shouldn't say that because I may never get another teaching job. But <laughs> I think Saturday Night Live Sorry. might have some openings. Trip. I don't know. They don't they don't have a resident theologian, so have a better chance there. But you know, I have professors who just ultimately almost killed theology for me because of of their presentation of it and i thought my goodness it's got to be far more interesting than this and uh and so that's sort of the approach i take uh because i think it engages students and as well as riles them up and offends them and and all this sorts of things so it's a lot of fun it's a lot of fun you start out the book talking about how your search how not just your search but our search for the devil is really more about a search for god 
um, you said, so you see, I'm not challenging the existence of God. I'm challenging the God thought to exist. Talk about that a little bit. What, what kind of, what kind of God are you challenging? What kind of God do we think exists that maybe, maybe you think we need to deconstruct? Yeah, and that was important because when you read part of the first chapter there, and especially if I'm talking about the works of someone like Feuerbach, uh, who says, you know, God is, is nothing more than sort of a psychological construct of, of our minds, and it's we project certain needs and desires onto something that doesn't exist. Um, and, you know, I t- I'll tell that, you know, to some of my pious students, and they get really offended, and I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I forget, much, much of the 20th century great theologians said Feuerbach was 100% correct. <laughs> but yes, we create God in our own image, in our own needs, in our wants and desires all the time. Um, he's right on that. And so, you know, as you can tell in the first part, uh, I, I knew where I was going that some folks would not be pleased uh, uh, with the tone. And so I was quick to say, as you said, uh, I'm challenging a certain conception of God um, that I think has become something of an idol, um, particularly in North American versions of Christianity. And uh, I, that's what I want to, to belittle because I feel like from from fundamentalism to, and I have a lot of friends in this camp, but to my good friends in the process theology camps, um, God has become just another being, just another agent in the universe. Um, uh, uh, and, and if that's not an idol, if that's not something worthy to strike down, I'm not sure what is. Mm. Um, uh, I think there's something to be said for 1,900 years of good Christian uh, Orthodox thought on this subject that, you know, God is not on the same ontological plane as us. God is not just another being or deity to be found and located right there in the universe where we say, hey, there's God, you know, um, just a bit bigger version of us. And so a lot of it had, comes down to that, as well as you can tell, I play a lot with um folks who have this conception of God, uh, a very fatalist um, and deterministic understandings of God and providence and things like that. So, um, so, and so I thought, yeah, let's poke a little bit of fun at it and see if we can't, if we can't go at it from that way. Yeah. Um, oh, you do a good job of it too. <laughs> um, you, you said in the book, when you kind of start out to kind of frame where you're going to go with the book, you talk about how so much of what passes for a person's search for God tends to be located in two different frameworks, uh, one personal experience and the other apologetic precision. And you basically say, you just totally shred both of those and say, these are completely inadequate to use in our search for God. What do you think's wrong with the approach of personal experience or apologetic precision? I think a lot of apologetics is just just swimming in heresy. I mean, because so many of the poly, uh, apologeticians of the past two centuries have just accepted accepted certain questions um, that they should never assume, and accepted certain parameters and, and grammar of uh, certain kind of questions that they felt necessary to answer. Uh, and so, I find a lot of apologetics. Um, I, I, it's it's hard for me to to buy into them anyway because. For me, the the best of apologetics is still really bad theology, and, and I have to be more precise. So I have to give you know certain examples, or if you ask certain questions about, well, I want you to prove the existence of God, um, and and again, I already think those those kind of questions. As Aquinas, who you know people like to go to him and say, well, he did the five ways, but he was doing something radically different. He didn't think that the cosmological argument or uh, an argument from uh, so-called design or anything like that was actual. You know, boom! There's proof. There, God exists. Um, 
And I think much of the apologist strategy ends up again becoming, you know, the defense itself becomes something by which the person worships uh, um, and has a tendency to our idolatry. But again, we have to be very far more specific when I when I call those out. Um, and plus, I just think that the, the God that people think that they're proving in apologetics never looks like the God that is Jesus. Mm. Uh, it always looks like, you know, the big clockmaker in the sky. Yeah, like, like one, one that's always bothered me, Trip, is the unmoved mover. I mean... Then go worship the unmoved mover, but what the heck does that look like? I wouldn't have any idea. Not, not the slightest clue of what that would look like. Um, so, yeah, it, 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 it lacks specificity and, and ultimately, in some ways, strikes me as very anti-Semitic because it knocks out Jesus and the whole Jewish story that makes Jesus possible. Mm. Uh, so there's just a whole quandary of, of problems, I think, in, in modern apologetics, and, and far, far more articulate uh, people than myself have have have, have gone after them. I, David Bentley Hart is a lovely um, example of someone who can, who sort of goes after much of uh, 19th and 20th century apologetics. Mm-hmm. You you have a when when you kind of bash those two approaches, you have I have to say the most unique approach to God <laughs> to the to the search for God that I've that I've ever heard of. Can can you? What was that? You, we broke out on there. I think it's Milbank who said, "You know, innovation is always heresy." I don't want to be unique. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have to say this is pretty darn innovative. You you uh, said about looking for God. By looking for the devil, can you tell us where that idea came from and kind of set up the story for us? I can't take credit for this one at all. I was um, teaching an introduction to religious studies course one day, and we were talking about these things. I was going over some of these arguments for the existence of God um, and these sort of things. And uh, and so, you know, my classes, for all the years that I've uh, been teaching, uh, eight years now, um, I pretty much... Uh, get the same answers, you know, every time about why people believe in God or where they don't, you know, the same arguments for and against. And it was just a really interesting conversation where I had um, uh, this one student who was just like, you know, you can't, you know, you can't say, you know, God exists in a way that, you know, I'm holding this cup or something like that, which actually would be a very valid theological point because God cannot be knowledgeable in the way, because again, God's not an agent in the universe like a cup is or uh, an object. And, um, and, and, and somehow, so I had one student who just, you know, neither student would relent on it. And, um, um, I can't quite recall the conversation. I probably should have looked at my book there, but I just remember one of the students, uh, um, bringing up, you know, Satan and, and talking the basic sort of two kingdom thing of, you know, either you're under the rule of God or you're under the rule of, of Satan and Satan's at work. And, and so one of my students said, well, maybe it would be easier to find Satan, especially cause this this one kid was basically accusing him of being under the power of Satan. And he said, you know, if I'm under the power of Satan, I'd at least like to think I know it. Maybe I can find, you know, him, um, um, if Satan is indeed a him. And, uh, uh, so this kid was just sort of joking around, like, you know, and then if I could locate Satan, if I could find evidence or proof that Satan exists, then, you know, I would have to sort of de facto have to believe that God exists kind of thing. And so this kid was willing to make a bet, you know, to go on a hunt for Satan and, and do everything he could in hopes of actually, you know, finding evidence for existence of God. So, And so it was kind of funny, and I thought, you know, this is what teaching is like. Sometimes you just have days like that, and you just kind of laugh at it all. But as I started thinking more and more about it, I started thinking about how, especially in the southeast, um, Satan gets as many shout-outs in the church as sometimes as Jesus does. 
I was like, well, maybe that's something interesting. Maybe maybe I can find the works of Satan. Maybe I can uh, locate very precise, you know, uh, there's there's everything from Satan's to devil worshippers to Pentecostals that think Satan's behind every single, you know, glitch in technology. Uh, um, so maybe he wouldn't, he or she wouldn't be too difficult to locate. And so I was like, let's go, let's go on a hunt, on a search. And so, um, you know, that's, that's part of what it was is my boredom with apologetics and personal experience is the arbiter of, uh, uh, of proof of, exi- of God's existence. I was like, we're looking for Satan and, uh, we'll see how that goes. And, you know, I'm not an innovator in the fact that I'm not the first to do that. Uh, uh many folks in, uh, in the history of Christianity have, have done similar things. Well, you know what they say, Trip. Bore- boredom is the tool of the devil. I mean, <laughs> I know, I know. Well, I wasn't, I was not bored on the search. I'll tell you that. No, in, indeed, indeed, you weren't. You know, you said something in talking about that, uh, the kind of two kingdom mentality that we have or two kingdom setup. Um, you said something in the book, and I think this was actually the title of one of your chapters, talking about the Protestant deification of the devil. You said the Protestant South has an undoubted love affair with the diabolical one. That pointy-eared chief of demons seems to be responsible for every single tragedy, calamity, and mishap in the world. Why is it that that we have that we have such a huge view of Satan almost to the point where we see Satan as if not being on par with God then maybe actually at least in much of my experience it seems like we've put Satan as being a more active agent in the world than God is why do you think that is Well and you know I, I guess it could be a number of reasons one again I think um Especially in this culture, we, we're just desperate to have an enemy. We're desperate to have something to, to to pin something on, and and then if all the bad things that happens due to some you know diabolical you know horny figure, then uh, then we can relegate our enemies and put them in that camp too. And then you know what happens once you demonize someone, they become less than human. Then even Jesus' instructions to how to treat them go flying out the window. Um, we see that time and time again. So that's um, um, that's nothing new, and, and obviously it's. It's nothing too new because uh, theologians, you know, throughout history have even warned uh, against making more of the the devil um, than what's, uh, you know, Karl Barth has some interesting comments on why it's, uh, we should look at the devil, and we can talk about this in a bit. First, the devil is a myth, um, in as much as the devil can can steal the show from God, in as much as we uh, make our sin and our vices far more interesting than what they really are, um, and, and so. Uh, it's by no means a, a new phenomenon, um, though for for whatever reason, at least um, um, here in the sort of the southeast, with a lot of the Protestants that I've been around, um, they uh, if they didn't love them, they sure loved hating them. Uh, and he was always, as you saw there, I included a huge list of <laughs> go, go over that list with us. Tell us tell us some of the things that Satan is responsible for. Well, I'm trying to. I was trying to think. Um, Okay, this is and this was um, this was just from a few of the things that I had actually heard. You're right, because yeah, there's some more. So I gave this list of you know, uh, um, according to to uh, authorities in the Christian churches, uh, <laughs> as unplugged the screen projector, um, encouraged people to vote for Bill Clinton, created albinos. I'm I'm guessing it had to be the red eyes. Um, introduced thoughts of impurity to everyone except for my Sunday school teacher. Is a very, very virtuous Sunday school teacher. We were all pagans. Um, made watermelons taste like tomatoes, and that was a very strange thing. <laughs> I found that one. I got. I got to inquire. Where the heck did you hear that one? 
Well, we, we were actually at like a church potluck kind of thing, and we had these watermelons, and uh, and this lady, and this lady was like, "These things taste like tomatoes," and I'm like, man, they kind of actually do. And I don't know, it's because she already planted this, but it, she, it was this whole thing where we had two different people who were bringing watermelons, and I think one person was offended that everybody was eating somebody else's watermelons. <laughs> I mean, that's trivial. Uh, these kind of things. Uh, uh, let's see, uh, led Michael English to have an adulterous affair. I heard that, that one. Um, uh, uh, not Mike's hormones. Uh, possessed the Pope, Jane Fonda, and Gorbachev. Inspired the creation of South Park, Will and Grace, and Three's Company. <laughs> said, "Rest in peace, John Ritter. I hope you're not in hell." Uh, is behind homosexuality, which we have a lot of fun with that one. Uh, one thing often was the gave the Yankees victory over the South, which for possession of their northern souls, of course. Um, Constantly wears a blue dress. Uh, I mean, there's there's just some some crazy ones. One of the one of the funniest ones that I was talking down here is especially growing up, uh, um, the Nazarene background. Um, uh, and I mean, I heard this all the way through college. Uh, promotes dancing, which leads to sex. And I actually had this conversation where I asked the minister. I was like, well, "What kind of dancing? You got to be specific here. Is it salsa? Is it swing? Is it the Lindy Hop? Uh, uh, um, the Jitterbug? What is it?" And you know, I remember this Nazarene revivalist, you know, just looking dead at me, just angry, and he said, "All oh, dancing leads to sex," uh, which of course, you know, being nineteen year old, hearing that, I you know, immediately start dancing. Every dance I. Mind. I'm shaking it. Well, let me let me just uh, let me just throw in a parenthetical thought here. Uh, growing up as a Southern Baptist, I always heard the exact opposite. You know, the reason you didn't have premarital sex is because it might lead to dancing. <laughs> See, my heroes were David. You know, David's going down the street. You know, David's an exhibitionist. That guy's running down the street half naked, and. Uh, uh, and God did not take too kindly to people making fun of his dance moves. So, um, so I try to get out there as much as I can and, and try to witness to King David, uh, <laughs> that sort of messianic reality there. Well, well, uh, some of these people that you, that you went on your search for Satan, some of these people that you took to be experts, I guess, um, everyone from a Nazarene preacher to a Pentecostal, what, what was that trip? That's what they told me. They told me they were experts. Oh, I was like, just but, we got to take their word for it, I guess. Uh, you had Pentecostal preachers. You went and you went and visited um, Satanists, uh, Unitarians. Tell us maybe about uh, about some of these experiences and uh, if you actually found Satan among any of these people. Well, I, I don't want to um, again. I don't want to give a spoiler. And, and say that I found whatever that means. Although I think the book is kind of clear. Um, some people, it's funny because some people came away thinking, oh, this is what he found or didn't find. But if you think about it a little deeper, you'll see. But, um, oh, man, I don't know where to begin. You know, I was hanging out with, you know, Pentecostal snake handlers. I was hanging out with Satanists who were making fun to me for even considering the possibility that the devil was real <laughs> because you know a lot of satanists are not they, they don't assume an ontological reality but so like crap i gotta go hang out with like some real genuine devil worshipers um which was you need to go to more death metal mislead. concerts man that's what it was it was like all these sort of gothic kids who was just like oh man i'm sorry you're not you know, one of the cool kids in school, but you really have to go down this kind of, you know, road. I mean, just ma- mainly it was just like really bad taste in music and a love for Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> Which I, 
good good for those role playing games, man. Those you know, team, he made those possible. Um, but experience wise, I, I I don't even know you know where to begin. It was it was just so intense. A lot of the situations, and I detail probably only about a tenth of them, or not even that. I mean, a twentieth of them. What one thing that one thing that seemed to be a recurring theme that I. At least I don't know if you intended it to to be this way, but it seemed like so many of the Christians, the quote unquote Christians that you spoke to, were actually maybe the tougher the tougher nuts to crack uh, than the ones that we would immediately think you know you would be more scared to be among. Like, for instance. Um, you know, having to tuck your tail and run from, from different Christians and, and, you know, or, um, some of the antagonism that went on in your questioning of, di- uh, of different Christians, whether it be about evolution or, um, uh, you know, about just following the logical conclusion of some of their statements. Uh, why do you think it is that it can be easier to talk to unbelievers or even Satanists sometimes about these things than it can be Christians. Yeah, you know, it's kind of an interesting thing. And, and of course, it wasn't always strictly across the board that way. But it, there was a lot. I had I did one interview where this guy was very much like, oh, you know, I would have never been able to to talk to the devil and Satanists and the, the neo-pagans like that. I would have had to have, you know, phoned those in. And I'm like, let me tell you something. I would have much rather phoned in some of the conversations I had with some of the Protestant ministers, no you know, those were the cats who were scary, uh, uh, by and large. And I often wondered, um, and again, not, not to, not to speak too crudely or, or too general here. To, um, but it seemed that at least in hundreds, hundreds of, of interviews and conversations I had that with a lot of the ministers, a lot of the Christian ministers, ministers are such certainty there. And I mean, just unabashed certainty by which, if you even put the slightest, you know, spoke in there, uh, um, they thought everything was going to crumble. And so you couldn't challenge anything. And even if that meant, as you see in the book, a lot of times I was just trying to get them to follow their own logical conclusion. I was like, well, if you think this is this, then this has to follow. And, and they would often get upset about me for even asking certain questions. And I mean, just angry because they thought it, you know, it poked holes in this sort of system they had constructed. Whereas with um, a couple of the kids, I had this, this shamanist uh, um, guy that I spent quite a bit of time with, um, a real sweet guy, um, um, some druids, some priestesses and stuff like that. And what I found, by and large, um, is that they lacked uh, this pure sort of I have everything down and it's exactly right. So they, I found that they were a little more open to the possibility that how they see the world may not be 100% correct. Mm-hmm. And as a matter of fact, quite a few of them were, were almost to the point where they were like, you know, I'm, I'm kind of experimental in this and I'm trying to figure it out. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to get from A to B where – a, a lot of the the, uh, the Protestant ministers I had conversations with, they'd already figured it all out. It didn't matter if they were 19 or 90. That there was no more journey. It was done. And uh, and so they were a lot less um, open to even entertaining certain questions. Mm. And, uh, and when you backed them up in a corner by which they suddenly realized that there could be a few holes in, in, uh, in, in, in how they constructed their own thoughts about God, um, they grew <laughs> violently angry. Not all, 
all of them. Uh, not all of them. Uh, 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 I had some very sweet people, of course, uh, and some very condescending. You know, I never had a single druid, shaman, satanist, or devil worshiper. You know, grab me and say, "I'm gonna pray for you, boy." You know, um, but I had many, 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 many Christians. <laughs> they were gonna pray for me. I was like, "Well, how about just praying for the end of my student loans?" Uh, uh, um, and God's apparently going your beck and call at any given moment uh how, how about dealing with that mm-hmm. um so it was interesting it was interesting and, and that's the only thing i can really think of maybe why that that case you know it's it's interesting i was listening to walter brueggemann the last couple of days and um he talked about just talking about how we're how we have this tendency um that the biblical narrative seems to speak to this like dialogical narrative that is, you know, continually in conversation with itself. Um, and yet the tendency of theology, especially of Christian theology for the last 2000 years has to been to close down conversation and nail things down and make lines in the sand. Um, why do you think, why do you think we have that tendency to close the conversation down? And why do you think, that surety and certainty is at such a premium in the body of Christ. Yeah. Obviously that's been the case during series of Christian history, but at the same time, you know, part of what makes a tradition a tradition as someone like McIntyre will define is ongoing argument. So, you know, you have 300 plus years of argument before you even get a creed that says, you know, let's talk about Christology and here's the Trinity. And even then, you know, a lot of folks uh, have historically have only seen the, the creed as just sort of a grammar for even to go about thinking uh, um, about how we can talk about things like the hypostatic union and, and you know, uh, pneumatology and these kind of things. Um, it's when suddenly that creed itself becomes the, uh, um, again, as I've said a couple of times, sort of becomes the idol, the thing by which if there's a problem with the creed, then that somehow has to take a shot at, you know, the triune God, um, even though that's just parameters of language. Um, and I would definitely say as sort of uh, after modernity, you have this very strong response to modernity that are still indebted to modernity, where you have things like religious fundamentalism, where, uh, um, you know, certainty becomes a virtue, um, and it's always certainty of, of one's theological, theological grasp of what they think, you know, mm-hmm. sort of uh, um, God is. And, and this is one thing where I always sort of agree with many of the good Hindus who often say, you know, you never, you never confuse the path to God as being God. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so Christianity is kind of interesting because Christianity does conflate that in as much as it says, you know, Christ uh, um uh, is the Son of God, and Christ is itself the path. But, but how we interpret that path is not necessarily the path itself. And unfortunately, it comes down to what our own interpretations are, our own ideological interpretations. And so we fall into that. Nobody wants to be challenged uh, um, to think uh, you know, that they're wrong in how they're interpreting Jesus. And so, as you see in the book, I never take shots at Jesus. I'm always taking shots at my own and other people's interpretations uh, um, of Jesus. Yeah. Um, and, and that seems to be at least a little bit more prevalent after modernity, though it certainly has existed um, um, throughout history as well. Yeah, you know, it, it seems like there's just something in us. And to me, 
to me, it's an adulterous tendency that wants to conflate um, our understanding of God with God himself. And part of part of what I loved about your book trip and part of what I really like about everything I've seen you do um, just in your interaction with different blogs and different things is that knowing how to, your, how to laugh at yourself and how even in the midst of some of your most um, firmly held positions, having the genuineness to say, I could be wrong. I'm a <laughs> fallible human being who could have this whole thing screwed up. Uh, just having that humility goes a long way to knocking down the idol of certainty in my mind. Well, I appreciate that. I don't know if it always comes out quite as, as, as humble. I remember one time when I was, uh, uh, um, man, just talking about a whole other topic, but um, I was uh, in Chicago and I was trying to have jury duty in North Carolina, which, by the way, was going to be very easy because I was a graduate student in Chicago. But I thought, you know what, let me let me play some theological cards here, so I wrote this letter um, uh, about being in the Mennonite tradition and Paul and Jesus' warning about going agent of wrath and retribution, not reconciliation, how I can't participate in jury duty and stuff like this. And so they'd actually, you know, actually called and, uh, or sent a letter back. I can't remember saying that, uh, I had to be there. So I actually called the place, uh, um, the courthouse. And I was like, had a conversation with the lady and, uh, I said, do you not receive the letter? Was it not clear? She goes, Oh yes, we received your letter. But, uh, she goes, you know, you should know something, you know, I, I you know work right here in the courthouse, and I've been a Christian for thirty five years of my life. I said we may need to be open to the possibility that you're not. <laughs> Ooh. which it came across obviously such a jerkish thing, but I just thought like, what an interesting thing to declare that just to say this is what I am, and it doesn't matter what I do. And I'm not saying anything about people working courthouses, lovely saints, I'm sure. Uh, um, but what does it mean to just sort of declare this and to know it that all I have to do is say it, and it doesn't matter what I do, how I act, how I treat one another, whether or not I love drones or missiles, but I'm just you know this kind of thing. And, and part of it was really just my way of saying, what does it mean to be open to the possibility that I'm not who I say I am, um, and all of that is I require a community to hold me accountable to those things that I say in them. And because I'm a baptized person, and I assume since she's been a Christian for 35 years, she was a baptized person too, that I could then ask her that question because we're two baptized people trying to hold one another accountable to the good that you know, uh, we call uh, the temporal kingdoms and, and, and the kingdom of God. But um, she didn't quite see it that way. And uh, she told me that two elements, county sheriffs, deputies were going to be at my doorstep if I wasn't there the uh, next day. I said, well, tell them to pack up on some gas because it's a 750-mile <laughs> <laughs> trip. She got pretty angry when she found out I was living in Chicago. Uh, uh, but those are all stories for another day. So, you know, you know, I, I just think all of that is, um, again, a means of having a community that's capable of saying, you know, uh, and, and that's one thing the Mennonites, have, you know, have taught me well is to, uh, they're very quick. They may not get sarcasm, but they sure get discipline. And uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're really quick to say, "Hey, this is this is not in line with how we, as a body, yeah. think of mm -hmm. um, the path of Christ." And, and thank God that there's somebody out there willing to to do that in a loving and humble way, who's also open to it. And uh, yeah, um, so yeah, yeah. That's that's good stuff, man. And, and that's something one of these days I'm going to have an, a conversation with the recorder off about is uh, the whole jury duty thing. Because I, I I got called for jury duty, I guess, about maybe a year and a half ago or something. 
And oh, I went through a massive search online trying to find some way, (laughs) you know, trying to find people that were going through the same thing that didn't have, that had the conviction to say, I don't want to take an oath. Well, we can, well, you know, one of the good things you don't have to, you can absolutely refuse to, you don't have to take a note. You can just, you know, tell, say, I'm going to tell the truth, but we can, we can talk about it sometime because I've been called three times and each time I took a different tactic and I actually had this lovely like argument in a courtroom with, with the judge over everything from the, the freedom to practice one's religious convictions to, uh, 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 his thinking that my civic duty trumped my ecclesial duties and things like that. So we can certainly talk about that at a later point. It was it was a hoot. Wow. It was a hoot. It was a good time. Um, don't take an oath, man. Jesus says not to do it. It's very clear. You don't do it. Yeah. It's good <laughs> stuff, man. Good stuff. Let, let's talk about minutia. And I, and here is a point, Trip, where I'm really going to have to diverge from you. And I've got a real bone to pick with you right now. Because seeing as I'm wearing a Carolina Panther shirt at the moment, which is a pretty regular occurrence for me, you are actually trying to tell me that God doesn't care about whether or not Steve Smith scores a touchdown. Now, I'm sorry. You're, <laughs> you're right about a lot of things. But on this point, I, I just don't know that I can concede this one, Trip. Why the heck would you say something like that? I don't, I don't know. I guess because of their record this past year. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> take the knife out. Take the knife out. That talent they have, and they can all <laughs> battle off six or seven wins. That's embarrassing, man. That's embarrassing. <laughs> yeah, uh, man. So, um, so Trip, so Trip, you're, you're telling us, which uh, I'm right here with you, although I have to leave a caveat there for the Panthers because obviously God cares about the Panthers after all. The sky is Carolina blue, so let's let's just remember that. Not this isn't a Duke Carolina conversation. This is a Carolina Panther blue. I'm going to clarify that. Um, but why is it that we have a tendency? It's so funny to me. For instance, how how an Armenian, for example, I'll, I'll hear you know I'll, I'll talk to people that are in the that are in the Wesleyan tradition, and out of one side of their mouth they affirm things like free will, and out of the other side of their mouth I'll hear them talk about, you know, maybe a, a car wreck happened and it was God's way of teaching them a lesson or that whatever, for instance, maybe a car wreck happened and, well, this was just, uh, God did this and, and, you know, that we somehow have to find divine providence in every little part of our life to be considered a Christian. Why, why is it that we get so involved in the minutia and is it an egotistical Western mentality that makes us think that somehow we're the center of God's universe. Uh, well, I mean, I, I'm quite possibly part of um, for sure. But yeah, there's, and that's one of the things I was trying to show and why I want to talk about Satan in the book is because there just seems to be purely unadulterated confusion. That, as you said, or uh, one person, one moment they're talking about free will and the ability to make decisions. And, and that affect their lives and et cetera, et cetera. Yet at the same time, everything that happens has just been, uh, you know, already predetermined and ordained and has occurred so much so that uh, I'm, I'm not 100% sure how you always have one without the other. And, and clearly you have, you have traditions and, and scores of theologians who, 
who will argue straight, you know, from a predestination standpoint, God is outside of time. Everything's been ordained. Everything's been done. Uh, we're only we only suffer under the illusion that we have the freedom to choose certain things, but since God is outside of time, everything's happened simultaneously. It's already happened. Those kind of things don't exist. And then you have very strong traditions also say no, 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 no. We're, we have the ability uh, um, to make our own decisions, to choose to follow God, to not follow God, um, and that also in the tradition there, you know, God created the universe. God is outside of the universe. God is not in the universe um, because God is not a part of creation. Um, God is not a created being. Um, uh, uh, therefore, there are certain contingencies that occur, especially in a fallen universe. So uh, some things, but sometimes bad things just happen. Uh, um, but we have a huge you know, need to always have an explanation. Uh, for why something you know sort of tragic happens, we need to import meaning. And I've often thought a lot of times, especially in really tragic situations, when uh, um, uh, uh, people come up ready to offer you know explanations for why God did it, I was like, "What a horrible thing to do!" And I've always found it to be incredibly. I've always thought atheistic because the only thing that I know that Christians are supposed to do when something really bad happens is to simply to suffer with the people who are suffering rather than just trying to give some pat answer for why it happened so you can go on about your main way and watch your sitcoms, you know, the rest of the night. Um, uh, but what does it mean to be open and vulnerable to the fact that, you know, I, I like what David Bentley Hart said about this. He said, how how horrible of a universe if we could actually locate meaning in things like school shootings. <laughs> if you could actually point to, you know, uh, 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 genocide in Rwanda or, or, you know, a plane crashing, you go, well, here's the explanation for it. Here's the meaning. What a terrible universe that would be if we could import some meaning in that and explain why, you know, that sort of happened. And, 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 and again, Hart thinks it's, it's a betrayal of, of, first of all, just understanding the, the contingency uh, of the universe and, and how God made it. And also, the inability for us to just suffer silently um, with those who are suffering, yeah. uh, which may be the most honest thing you know we could do. You know, you know, one of the crazy things about the whole idea of, you know, it, it's like I, I've heard so many Christians that talk about praying for parking spaces at shopping malls and you know getting good deals at TJ Maxx or you know whatever, and it's like okay, so you're telling me that God just somehow foreordained that SUV to pull out of that parking space so that you could find a parking space, but somehow he's not come up with, with a solution for hunger and AIDS and, you know, clean drinking water and, and all of these things. It's just, sometimes it boggles my mind, the things that we see God involved in. And yet trip, when I do that, I want to be careful because it's like, while I have this tendency, I have this tendency to see things in black and white, which can sometimes be a very dangerous tendency because simultaneously, while God doesn't, I don't, I don't think God's reserving uh, parking spaces at the mall. Simultaneously, he does care about the details of our life. And somehow we are, we're commanded to pray you know, even about those small things, kind of like Jesus saying, your father cares about the birds of the air and the, and the grass, of the field and all this kind of things. Where do we find the balance in, because sometimes honestly trip, sometimes, you know, I, I'll pray about something that feels important to me and feels like the father would care about. 
And simultaneously, I'll be thinking, yeah, and there's people being tortured in Syria right now because, you know, there's an evil dictator who doesn't realize it's his time to go. So where do we find the balance between not getting ridiculously um, embedded with this idea that God cares about parking spaces at malls, but simultaneously realizing that he does care about us. And even though there's hungry people and there's starving children and, and clean drinking water is, is, is not available everywhere. How do we still feel a confidence to come before the father to ask for things in the midst of all of this need in our world? Right. Yeah. Stellar question. And, uh, uh, I'm certain that I'm not the one to answer it, but, um, <laughs> take a little bit of a crack at it, although it's going to be uh, a poor answer, I'm sure. You know, I I think that um, how people pray um, disciplines, obviously, what they pray for and how they see, um, you know, uh, uh, people who, you know, pray for the football to go through a field goal and, and these kind of things. Um, that certainly shapes how you envision God and, and how do I balance that with a billion people starving on this planet and God really just maybe altering the football to spin just between the thing, but we'll let some kids in Haiti just starve to death. Don't, don't you that realize mean? that, you know, according to that commercial, if you turn your beer label a certain way, that the that the football will go through the goal? That is as likely as God intervening to do it. So uh, uh, drink your Bud Light and turn the bottles. I think that's <laughs> a better chance. Um, uh, at at the same time, you know, I, I I think I may be rather Augustinian when it comes to prayer, and that whatever prayer is, prayer is about somehow aligning our will with the will of God, um, and so therefore, um, it, it's uh, you know, I mean, this is a guy who, who argued of God's impassibility and immutability, so that's pretty strong when it comes to when it, how does prayer work, so to speak, and and, and prayer is always a humbling act of of, of submission. And aligning ourselves with that and the path of God, and and I don't know how to ever pray in such a way. Uh, and I think the question becomes: How do I pray in such a way that my prayer looks like what Jesus would pray for and stuff? And so, if I look at the path of Jesus, and I'm like, well, you know, you know, the one prayer Jesus had for God was, "Can this cup pass before me?" Mm-hmm. And God's like, "No." Um, <laughs> That I'm not sure uh, uh, how significant my prayer for, um, you know, uh, I don't know. Can I get over this cold two days earlier so I can go, you know, have some fun on Friday or something like that? Um, what that means. And again, that's got nothing to say about whether God can or cannot, you know, zap my, my cold. Rather, it's got something to say about me. Um, and, and what do these prayers say about me as a human being and how I understand the place of God? So it's got nothing to do with limitations on God's you know, power or whatever. Uh, um, but what do the prayers itself, what do the contents of the prayer have to say about me? Um, uh, because clearly, I mean, if you look at, uh, especially in the Hebrew Bible and the Old Testament, you know, God is very intimately involved in a lot of things. So much so that you you get the vibe that the the Israelites were like, man, I wish he'd bugger off for a little while, you know. Mm. <laughs> God's always up in our grill about everything, everything. Uh, <laughs> so much so that I'm sure they wanted to become the Greeks where, you know, God's a little bit more distant. <laughs> um, uh, so it's it's a heck of a balance. It's a heck of a balance. I think it, it just you may have to sort of subvert the question a little bit and ask what prayer says about us, but not mm. so much about what prayer says about God. Mm. 
You, you talk about an interesting thing in the book that we've talked a lot about on the podcast, um, especially in regards to things like mimetic theory, which we've covered a lot on the podcast, is this idea that so much of our talk of Satan is really an attempt to demonize groups that we find uh, ourselves not in alignment with. You, you quote Aleister Crowley in the book as saying, the devil is historically the god of any people that one personally dislikes, which I think you're really onto something. And you talk about that, you know, through all your interviews and conversations that you've had, that almost every discussion about Satan that you've had in this, in the research for this book has resulted in the person who believes in Satan ascribing to a group other than their own, a satanic status. Can you talk some about that and the dangers of that and how in the heck do we escape it? Hey, yeah. Ooh, that's a that's a good one. How do we escape it? Um, uh, in you know, again, it, it was just very interesting that uh, when I had conversations, especially for people, and we can talk a little bit about this because I think it's important to talk about the ontological status uh, of saying, especially to hear what people may be surprised to hear what Christian theology has often said historically. Um, but for those who are the most firm believers in sort of this, you know, ontological literal. Uh, um, fallen physical fleshy angel or whatever uh, um, for whatever reason it is always very quick to say um, to find people who were under that person's power and, and again it's that it's that sort of thing once uh, um, you know, it, there's just tendency to be like you know here's Satan and here are liberals or you know here's Satan and here are people who teach natural sciences um, um, and, or here's homosexuality, or, or here is you know Rwanda, and here's genocide, and kind of things, and and, and those sort of things. And you know how to escape them? I, again, I, you know, as we talked last time, I, I'd, I'd hope that Christians would be far more defined by what they're for. You know, uh, the teachings and, and of Jesus, the Eucharist, uh, um, than what they're against. And again, since the word Satan, you know, refers to the adversary. Uh, uh, as Christians in this culture, we're just very adversarial. I mean, uh, we love to have an opponent. We love to have an enemy. And so it's, it's just very easy to conflate uh, Satan with, with, with our enemies, I think, whether you think of Satan as myth- mythological or as an actual ontological thing. And, man, again, as I said earlier, that's where it becomes really, really dangerous because uh, um, then we demonize our brothers and sisters uh, on this planet. <laughs> yeah. That's not good. And, and, and you know, we always have a, we always have a tendency to, um, it, it's never us that's on the devil's team, right? It's, it's always them. And I, I think that's always, I, I'm, I'm reading a book by N.T. Wright right now. And he talks about how, um, we have to be so careful because Jesus, there, there's only two places where Jesus actually refers to the Satan, uh, in the temptation narrative, where he says, get behind me, Satan. And then lo and behold, he's talking to his best friend (laughs) and he says, get behind me, Satan. So all of a sudden, instead of finding Satan among them, smack dab in 50% of the uses of Satan by Jesus, he finds Satan among us, which is, which is really a scary thought that we can, that we can be the ones that are really the enemy. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the rock by which, you know, Jesus built his church, he referred to as, you know, Satan. 
So maybe that makes sense why we're so satanic. Um, Say <laughs> mm, mm. all the time, depending on how you mean you understand the word satanic. So yeah. When, when you talk about a moment ago, when you're talking about um, in the context of how do we get past this, and, and I've, I remember you saying this in the previous conversation too. You talk about being formed by the Eucharist. Can you kind of tease that out a little bit for us? And and how do you see that? How do you see the Eucharist as as being forming for the Christian community? Uh, you know, well, you know means to uh and especially in the Anabaptist tradition where it was there was part of what it means to partake uh of the flesh and blood of Jesus because you can't consume it, you partake, um, is that it forms you into the kind of person willing to have their own, you know, uh flesh and blood broken and, and spilled. You know, in the in the early church, of which my dissertation was heavily on the first few centuries of Christianity and on martyrdom. Um that was my first book was on martyrdom. Uh the Eucharist is exactly what made something like martyrdom possible. And it, it made sense. Martyrdom made possible only in as much as as you were a Eucharistic body. You know, someone who said, you know, our Savior may be risen, but at the same time, once a week we are eating and drinking that Savior. Mm. What does that mean for how I live every single day? And suddenly you have to start talking about guns and missiles and swords in a radically different way if you're a Eucharistic body. And 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 then, of course, in a lot of ways, the Eucharist ultimately becomes just sort of this symbol and this sign and this memorial and this remembrance thing. And, and, and again, in the 16th century, you know, it sort of comes back again, especially with Anabaptist theology where... No, I'm implicated. I, I'm drinking this thing that even Paul says to be very careful how you drink and eat of this because you could get sick and die. <laughs> and so I would just be more interested in, in, in a very rich sort of Eucharistic theology that says uh, I am partaking of this. What does that mean that, you know, even if it is purely symbolic, it's still pretty interesting that we're symbolic cannibals <laughs> and a cannibal of a deity. Uh, uh, um, and so it's a very interesting practice. And so how does that form and shape how we live? And I think if you start with that broken body, man, it changes everything about what it means to, to, to be a human and, and relate to other people. And, and that's why I think you'd be far more interested in being defined by that as opposed to, well, you know, I'm against, you know, dancing. <laughs> and, uh, and you have to be too, if you want, if you want Jesus to be your individual savior. <laughs> Oh my goodness. So, so you, you, you throw a bombshell kind of in the middle of your book that I understand where you're going and I, and, and this is not new to me, but I think it's going to be new to a lot of the people that are possibly listening. You know, we, in the Christian church, we have reduced so much of following Jesus to be about ethics, but, (laughs) but you actually say in the book that ethicists are satanic. Okay, now, unpack this forest trip. Well, unfortunately, we will not have time unless we got a couple of hours. But yes, uh, if I could, let me see if I can summarize this. Uh, um, base, uh, I mean, especially how we see modern ethics. Uh, I should qualify this. Uh, how we see modern ethics as, as this discipline by which we can discern rationally the difference between good and evil. And as Bonhoeffer is even quick to point out in his book Ethics, he says the first task of 
Christian ethics is to invalidate such knowledge. You know, it goes back. That's the very thing that got Adam and Eve the boot. You know, they decided they could distinguish between good and evil. And 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 this is why people like Soren Kierkegaard. I mean, why he was so anti-Kantian because Kant, you know, wanted to come up with a way of knowing the difference between good and evil without any sort of recourse to God, and therefore you create this universal ethic by which all people know the difference. And Kierkegaard was quick to know. He said that's just one step away from atheism, mm-hmm. because um, you know, if you need an ethical theory, you know, if you need utilitarianism or deontology to figure out how to live in this world, then you're certainly not worshiping the triune God mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, by any means. And so, uh, <laughs> part of that, and of course, it's a much more labored conversation that we have in there. Is is uh, my claim in multiple places that part of what it means to be a Christian is to be amoral. Mm. Um, part of what it means to be Christian is to not bind to something called ethics. Um, uh, um, part of what it means to be Christian is to be obedient to things that do not fit with ethical theories. Mm. Uh, um, as Kierkegaard said, there is nothing ethical about a. Oh, we lost you here for a minute, Trip. I think our hopefully our connection's still good. Can you hear me now, Trip? I can hear you now. Okay, sweet. Let me let me see if I can. There, we, uh, there we go. Let me. Uh, oh, are we good? I'm turning back on. There we go. Yeah, I don't know what happened. Our our connection just. I'll tell you. I'll tell you what happened. What? Satan. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Satan. Satan, or either, or either the ghost of Emmanuel Kant, uh, um, or may, maybe Reinhold Niebuhr. He probably wasn't appreciating that conversation very much at all. <laughs> One of those three. That's oh, what I'm putting my money. This is this is the perfect illustration right in the middle of our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Stop bashing ethics. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. so uh, so somehow we yeah. lost you in the midst of talking about ethics. Can you pick back up if uh, if you know where you were? Can you pick oh, back man. up talking about man. ethics? Uh, again, you know, if you're uh, as I was saying, you know, for, for, for Jews and. Christians, if you're worshiping the God of Israel, the God of Jesus, and you know you need an ethical theory to figure out how to live, to figure out how to treat your your neighbors, you're in a lot of trouble. Mm. Uh, um, and so, again, a lot of that was just sort of a critique of of modern ethics, and and just sort of the shock statement of telling my students in Christian theology classes, like, no, I don't want you to be ethical. That's the last thing I want you to do because um, ethics are, are for people who don't have, uh, um, um, you know. God, it's an atheistic enterprise for sure. I mean, the very uh, point of much of modern ethics was to figure out how to make sure we can all discern what's good and evil without any recourse to to any deity mm. whatsoever. Mm. And, um, and thank the, the good gods that Kierkegaard figured that out pretty early. Uh, um, but and again, there's been a lot more. Uh, I'm certainly not a pioneer in that. Uh, Karl Barth has has said much about that. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, John Milbank um, has a lovely chapter called Christ- "Can Christianity Be Moral." Um, in his book, The Word Made Strange, which I highly uh, recommend as well. Um, you know, you know, Tripp, it, it really is true. It's like, it, I think this goes right back to the whole demonizing capacity that we have within Christianity that we were talking about earlier is this whole idea of judgment. And, you know, Jesus tells us not to judge others and that with the, with the measure that we use to judge others, that that'll be returned upon us. It, it seems like we really miss it when we begin to almost unwittingly go back and eat from that tree of the knowledge of good and evil every single time that we make ethical judgments about all of these issues in our society. And what's so crazy is it seems like what the church is known for instead of self-sacrificial love and, 
and looking like Jesus is that we're known for what we're, you know, for the black and white issues, for what's good and evil, for what's right and wrong, for, you know, to me, it's, um, it's so bizarre because I think you probably grew up similarly to me in a conservative Christian denomination that basically told you that the, the content of your Christianity was, you know, you don't smoke, you don't chew and you don't go with girls who do. Right. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Pretty much. Yeah. and, and a lot of that stems again from, I mean, you know, that that's sort of the, the key problem with everything from the problem with ethics uh, to legalism is that you're always going to have a norm other other than Jesus to sort of to fill that. So with, with ethics, you're going to, you know, the second you hear somebody say something like, we got to be responsible, look out because you're about to get, you know, you're about to get, you know, as I said earlier, you're about to get sucker punched. Uh, um, um, so uh, the good of the many utilitarianism, these things, it's always some no, norm other than Jesus mm. um, is implicated. So steer very clear away from ethics to yeah. avoid it at all costs. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, you threw another bombshell right in the middle of your book. And I have to say, I absolutely, this is something I've thought about, but you stated it in a way that just blew me away was you were talking about in, in Luke four um, where Jesus is being tempted by Satan. And, you know, he, he goes through the three different temptations, but the one temptation that seems to be the biggie and the one that seems to be a recurrent theme throughout the ministry of Jesus that he continually is tempted with is this idea that all of the kingdoms of the world could be given him if he would simply bow down and worship Satan, which you said raised the question. <laughs> I just found this fascinating where, where, <laughs> where Satan says, I'll give you all of the kingdoms of this world for it's been given to me and I give it to anyone I please. So therefore you raise the question, Satan gives power to those who worship him. So what does this say about world leaders and politics? Now, I know we're going down a little bit of a rabbit trail here, but once again, we do own the domain rabbittrailpodcast.com. But as me being a, uh, a much failing, but aspiring anarchist, um, <laughs> I I completely appreciated the sentiment of what you're saying here, but there's going to be many people out there who went to a voting booth this past November who are going to find what you said offensive. Can you unpack that for us and uh, and tell us the the relation of Christianity or maybe the 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 discongruity of Christianity and politics? Oh wow! Well, <laughs> uh, let's just start a whole new episode, right? Yeah, right. Um, well, first of all, Christianity is its own politics. So, uh, you know, I never privileged something out there called politics or something out there called society. Christianity is its own politics. Early church understood that well. Um, you know, I, I certainly don't mean to say anything like that just to, to offend, but to sometimes I, I word things like that in order to shock to see if, wait, maybe we can actually hear this again. Yeah. Because what I want to do is I, I want to take this stuff seriously. You know, maybe Jesus really was having a conversation here. Uh, um, not hallucinating up on the, on the top of the hill and and all this stuff, or having some inner self, you know, existential, you know, fight with Jesus himself. And of course, then what I end up saying about Satan later on may shed light or may confuse more. Um, but it seems very clear that uh, the Prince of the Air uh, has been given some sort of power, and, and then shares that power with whomever that Prince chooses. And so. It wasn't a mystery that the early church was, was uh, um, though they thought all the powers ultimately were ordained by God, they realized that this prince of the air was was the one that was sort of running 
the show in these sort of temporal kingdoms. And so they were very, very, very wary because you can't ever trust a person in power because you got to wonder how they got there, mm. um, especially if it's the case that Jesus is the one handing out the keys. Mm. Uh, um, but, you know, the early church wasn't as concerned about Nero or Diocletian or Decius if they actually had to worship Satan to do it. What they were concerned about is why Jesus refused to do it mm. and what that meant um, for who they were called to be. Why did Jesus, hey, he could turn all the bread into stones. I mean, all the stones into bread. Wouldn't that be great? We could fix uh, world hunger right now. Jesus had the ability to do it, but he didn't do it. Uh, um, Jesus could have brought down all of his angels, you know. Jesus could have taken care of it all right then. Uh, you know, G Jesus was not terribly responsible, at least in terms of the, the means by which we're told as North American Christians to be responsible. And so they were very interested as to why he refused that and what it meant for his kingdom to be of, of another world. And, and so then there are certain sort of implications that people have to think through on their own about what it means to be a part of a representative democracy by which, you know, we're the ones who put these people into power. Uh, um, what does that passage have to say to us directly? And, and maybe that could make some folks hesitate to vote, and maybe not. Um, uh, but it should at least um, call some sort of conversation. Uh, um, uh, uh, what it means for to be citizens, resident aliens, to be uh, citizens of another kingdom, yet to invest so much uh, interest, uh, pour our lives into temporal cities. That's that temporal cities are not a good um, as they are, but again, to quote Augustine, the, the best good you have is, is purely parasitic uh, upon the kingdom. Uh, um, so you, you never want to have a rival allegiance, uh, um, and that may be one way of, of making sure we, we don't give too much to Caesar. Mm. Maybe, maybe. Mm. Mm. You know, you, uh, you in the book, ha having, having somewhat of a uh, Robert... Don't give it Oh, oh, we're not. We're not. I, I, I'm just gonna. I'm just gonna make. I'm, I'm gonna make people uh, uh, <laughs> pique people's curiosity here, hopefully. But but you kind of have a Robert Johnson crossroads experience that I want people to read about. <laughs> the uh, and and for our international listeners, that's where Robert Johnson sold his soul to the devil so he could play blues guitar better, and it must have worked because guy's a pretty darn good musician, right? Sane. <laughs> no. Um, but and I don't want to give that away. But so you basically the the point I'm trying to make is you you saw this thing through to the end to go from Protestant preachers who claimed that they were casting out demons, uh, whether it be whether it be anyone from a Nazarene preacher to someone like Bob Larson or Cindy Jacobs who's casting demons out of cats, which I just have to say. Um, if that is possible, uh, I would be all over that because I personally believe that cats are demon possessed. So, diabolical man, the, the cats are absolutely diabolical. Yeah, no doubt. I, I have to be in agreement with Cindy on that one. Um, so, so you went from you went from Protestant preachers to Satanists to your own crossroads experience. And which I which I don't want to give away because I want people people really need to read about this crossroad experience. But yeah. in all that, um tell me tell me what was the what was something that you learned from this experience that going into it you didn't already know or that you didn't expect. 
Oof, man, there's a lot. I mean, a lot of people always come back, and I don't want to to give too much away. And it's funny you bring up the Crossroads experience because those were the kind of things, those were the very reasons why I didn't want my parents to read this book. Um, <laughs> as, a matter, as a matter of fact, I made a mistake. As soon as the book was published, I told my mom, who, who buys all my books, who, she's read a couple of them. I was like, you know, don't read that book. You just don't read it. And of course, she read it like in the first hour it came in and she was just who are you i was like you raised me i am who you guys made me i have no control over this uh, i'm a product of, of your parental skills no i'm not gonna blame that on my parents but um I, you know i learned a lot of things I, there were there were certain things that weren't surprises there were other things that were uh people are always like well did you find satan and and it's it's a very very yes and no kind of question um uh, i can say absolutely very much so and uh but maybe not in the means by which some people are necessarily thinking. And, and I don't know how much to go into that. I mean, again, I think that uh, from Augustine to Bart, I think there's been some very, very um, um, theologically sensible ways to, to look at that in, in terms of ontology. Um, uh, but I did find that this is a, this can be a very fun, funny world, and it's obviously a good world because God created it, but it's also very, very scary. <laughs> No doubt. <laughs> and the people who I thought would be the scariest were not. And the people who I thought I should be most comfortable around, uh, I was not. Uh, um, so it was very disconcerting, but it was it was a good time. I wouldn't trade the experience for anything. Um, um, and, and what's interesting is I've had so much response from emails and letters where I really wanted to, to write a second book called uh, – Satan search for me. Um, <laughs> given the amount of people who have been coming um, at me with with stuff, but I've had a very, very, very good overall response, and the reviews have been have been stellar and very kind and hospitable, especially for the folks who actually finished the book to kind of get a get the full vibe of what I was actually doing. They didn't write it off in the first chapter. So, so, so at the end of all this, I know the question that's burning in people's minds because I see it often on our Facebook page. Um, it's something that I personally, uh, think about a lot myself because, you know, my personal history is I was raised Southern Baptist. Um, then I, then I went charismatic and was, uh, in a four square church, went to a four square Bible college, went to a word of faith, Bible college, ended up pastoring in a four square church. Um, so I am very, (laughs) very familiar with charismatic experiences of the devil. And yet I find myself, you know, years removed from that experience and out of the institutional church and, you know, just, uh, really, I'm at the point, a lot of the people in our podcast community are of even questioning, is there an actual devil? Is there an ontological reality, a, a person, a fallen angel, whatever we want to call him, that is the devil. And if not, how do we explain things like the temptation narrative? How do we explain Jesus casting demons into swine and and all of these kinds of things? What 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 conclusion, or should I say, what loose conclusion have you come to for yourself about the devil? Well, I don't I don't want to go into too much of that because then that'll be the spoiler, the kind of thing. And and actually, I spent quite a bit of time on on uh, the suicidal. Uh, pigs who you know jump in the water and those kind of things. Um, I will say, if I can give a little bit away, that I tend to think that about the first fifteen hundred years of Christianity got it pretty close to right. Um, 
when they argued. Um, uh, you know, Origen and Arnobius were the first to talk about the presence of evil and, and saying that whatever it is, it doesn't stem from God. And then Augustine on through uh, um, with the Privatio Boni theory, where I think it's orthodox, I think it's theologically correct to uh, um, and, and important that Christians deny the existence of evil. And by that, I mean uh, um, evil is not a tangible reality. There is no substance that I can hold and say this is evil because the world that God created is good. And everything that exists in the universe, so claims uh, Christian theology, is created by God. Therefore, unless we're willing to assert that God is the author of evil, which a religion like Islam, by the way, thinks that, you know, God creates all things good and evil, et cetera, et cetera. And they take some of that from a passage in Isaiah where it talks about God being a creator of light and dark. Um, but uh, the Christian tradition took a very different approach and said that uh, um, God does not create evil. And um, therefore what that meant is that evil doesn't exist. Uh, rather what you have is what's been known as probatio boni, the lack of good. Rather you have um, human will attempting to act on its own understanding of the good. Uh, which is a falling away from the good because it's parasitic. So even someone is, is as atrocious as Hitler uh, um, is acting on what he thinks is his own best interest and his own and what he understands is the good of Germany, mm. and he thinks that that is a good thing uh, um, because his will is not aligned with the God uh, with the will of God. Then anything like that is going to be a, a decrepit, uh, um, a parasitic version of the good, which can't but look evil but it's a very different reality to say uh, um, that evil exists or that evil doesn't exist that comes up with completely different quandaries and so the Christian tradition was always right I think to deny the existence of evil doesn't exist it doesn't exist which completely changes the whole question of theodicy Mm. and how we respond to that now then you have to talk about well that's fine well how to how did we get to the point of the lack of good? You know, how did we get to these sort of things? And it gets great and confusing on this very matter. Um, but if that's the case, then you have to think, you have to turn that on and think about what the existence of, if there is a literal ontological Satan, what that means for Satan. And as Augustine himself noted, if Satan exists, Satan only exists because God created Satan. And if you look throughout the Hebrew Bible, Satan only ever does what God tells Satan to do uh, um, uh, and commands Satan to do. Uh, um, does this mean that this is evil? Um, um, so I, I think if, if you take that, and again, I don't want to give a spoiler, but I, I think that's very implicit, and I talk about that in one of the chapters, that that really recont- – and it's unfortunate. It's, that's a, a, a part of Christian theology for 15-plus hundred years. That's just been completely abandoned and lost because people just think, oh, I just can't. Obviously, evil exists. Genocide in Rwanda, yeah, that's horrible. Absolutely. Uh, um, uh, uh, but I, there's a n- way of narrating it that I think is still more faithful uh, to the account that we have of the triune God. Mm. Um, uh, and it doesn't make it any less real um, to say that evil does not exist. It's simply saying, you know, it, it, as, as Gregory of Nyssa said, um, uh, to draw an analogy, he said um, evil is like blindness. Uh, in humans, sight is something that is natural to humans. What is blindness? Blindness is not a tangible reality. Blindness is a lack of something that should be there. Mm. It is a lack of sight. It is a lack of good that is sight. Uh, um, 
there's a lot of wicked things going on uh, um, in this world. Um, but that's a very different reality. And then how that translates over to Satan. I mean, that's the reason why Bart shook the world when uh, he referred to Satan as a myth. And everybody's like, whoa, what do you mean by that? And, and Bart meant, he said, you know, the very so-called existence of, of Satan is to be the object of denial. And therefore, the only proper relation to the object of denial is denial. <laughs> That's the only proper relationship you can have to that. Otherwise, you make Satan too interesting of, a, of, of an object uh, in the world of Christian theology. Um, but anyhow, I don't want to give too much away, and I really don't do any of that until you see me talking about the stuff in the epilogue. Um, most of it, as you see, is mainly conversations and interviews and and me running quickly out of office doors, <laughs> dodging the lack of good that comes from certain people's fist. <laughs> oh, do- dodging that vacuum of the good. So, uh, so Trip, I am so glad that you that you escaped to tell us the details. <laughs> Prov- Provatio Boni sometimes feel very, very real. You know, it's not an illusion. It's not an- <laughs> All I got to say is. Uh, being that being that you are a controversial person when it comes to talking about the devil, and being that you're also from the Mennonite tradition that believes that you can't fight, you just better be able to run really fast, right? That's from an early age, man. I'm a little guy, so I had to learn how to, you know, quite quickly. So uh, yeah, I've got some legs, man. I can roll. I can roll. Well, Chip, all I got to say is keep running, brother, because we want to have you back on. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining us, Trip. Trip, thank you once again for taking the time to join us for this conversation. Uh, just really appreciate you, man. I appreciate what you stand for, and I appreciate the way that you can really use your humor to cut through some of the crazy things that we think when it comes to life and God and theology. So I really appreciate you, man. Thank you once again for taking the time. And folks, thank you for taking the time to join this conversation, to listen to the things that we have to say on here, the guests that we bring on. I just really appreciate you taking the time to listen to what we're putting out there. And I really appreciate the conversations that we get to have online. If you get a chance to pick up The Devil Wears Nada, (laughs) I think it's really going to challenge you. I read one reviewer that said, if this book doesn't offend you in some way, If you're not at some point offended by this book, then you probably weren't paying attention. (laughs) But you know, the truth is, it's probably going to step on your toes in some places, but sometimes our toes need to be stepped on to clear up the crazy things that we think about God and the devil and just theology in general. So if you get a chance to pick up the book, go and do so. We'll leave a link on our website. And if you want to join the conversation, we love to converse with you at Beyond the Box. Um, This is just a growing community. It's more than Steve. It's more than me. This is a community of people. Beyond the Box has become about you guys. It is a, I just really believe it's a community of people that are giving each other the free space to think out loud about life, about God, about theology. So I really hope you'll join the conversation. If you feel like you want to go to our Facebook page and do that, we would love to have you there. Go to facebook.com slash beyond the box. That's where you'll find a great community of people that you can comment on the episodes that you've listened to. You can leave disagreements or agreements or questions or thoughts, or you can start your own thread there. You'll see where a lot of our listeners have started their own threads on things that they want to talk about. 
you are welcome to do that. We love seeing that pop up at Beyond the Box. So if you get a chance, jump on the Facebook page. You can also sign up for our Twitter account, twitter.com slash btbpodcast. You'll be notified of every time that we uh, post something on Facebook and every time a new episode has been posted as well. Make sure to check out our website, beyondtheboxpodcast.com. You'll find an idea submission page there where you can submit ideas for future podcasts or future discussions. Um, You can leave comments or questions or snide remarks or whatever you want to there as well on any of the posts that you see, whether they're old or new, um, borrowed or blue. I'm sorry. (laughs) I had to do that. Um, And also, while you're there, you'll see a widget on the right-hand side of the screen called a Call Me widget. If you click that widget, you can type in your name and phone number and have our answering service call you back. You can leave a message there that if you'd like us to play it on the podcast, we'll be glad to do so. Or if you just want to make an audio comment, maybe you're at work on a break or maybe you're driving down the road and you want to pull off on an exit and just fire away a quick comment while you're thinking about it, that's a great way to do that. Also, if you want the phone number directly, I guess that would help if you're (laughs) driving down the road. That number is 626-246-6269. 626-246-6269. Six two six nine. That's six two six twenty four. No box. If that makes it easier for you, any way that you want to connect with us, we just appreciate you taking the time to do so, and we just hope that these conversations are helping you grow in your faith and in your walk with the Lord, and that they're helping to clear up maybe some crazy things that we've all embraced on our journey towards God. So, hope you enjoyed the podcast, and hope to see you next time as well. Have a great week, everybody.